welcome back to another episode. I'm Ellen Madden, and you're listening to Episode 3, Season 2 of Undercover. Hello. In today's episode, we will be exploring the distribution of the COVID vaccine in Victoria, or the lack thereof. We will start by examining young Australians' opinions on the vaccine, more specifically, how news of blood clotting has disturbed the public's confidence in AstraZeneca. We will explain exactly why vaccines will prevent us from going into lockdown and then look into the lack of distributions of the vaccine to our frontline workers. We'll then move into an issue that hasn't received a lot of media attention. That is vaccine distribution in prisons. On to our first story. Every set of eyes in the country is watching Australia's vaccine rollout unfold. So when there's a mishap, big or small, news travels far and fast. A single piece of information can rattle public confidence and further pose a risk to Australia's vaccine efforts. Up until news broke of AstraZeneca blood clotting complications, young people never received much mention in the conversation. So, are young people going to get the vaccine? And has public confidence taken a hit? If so, how can that be restored? Olivia Smith reports. I am 22 years old. I'm 18. 20 years old. And I am 22. 23 years old. And I am 20. I have to think about that. Oh no. I feel like I have lost a bit of faith. I have in vaccine and I'm not really sure as to if youngsters are still, you know, ready for it a little bit sceptical because you don't know what the long-term effects actually are because they haven't tested it for long enough like most things before they like administer it like they've tested it for at least two years minimum and this one they've tested maybe a month and was like this seems to work we'll just give it out to everyone if, if a vaccine or rollout program is happening now i'd probably wait at least one month to see how the people who took the vaccine how they're feeling and if they're feeling good and there is no adverse reaction, I'd probably take the vaccine. I yeah. probably won't until they figure out what the hell they're doing because they keep not able to make up their minds. They can't even decide what variants are and aren't where and when and who gets vaccinated against what. So I'll have to wait. We consider holding off on the vaccines now. There really hasn't been as much testing going into this one as there has other vaccines. I'm more of the opinion that like I'll just wait and see what happens. Um, but I'm not really like, I'm not against it. In any major way. At the moment, probably hesitant. Um, I, I can't see myself being vaccinated anytime in the next, let's say, six to 12 months. Um, but obviously, things can change very rapidly, new information can come out, and, and, and the story can develop. So, who knows? That's a question that I think people would need to be asked again in another six to 12 months. What I'm hearing is general hesitancy. A lot of people taking the stance of wanting to wait a minute, see how it goes before they line up to get the jab. Public confidence is crucial for a successful vaccine rollout, especially on the scale we're dealing with today. If we go back to the start of the year, there was talk that the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine would carry Australia in its efforts to vaccinate against the COVID-19 pandemic. Drug maker AstraZeneca claims it's found a winning formula. It's today approved the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine for use in Australia. The federal government's secured 53.8 million doses of the jab, 50 million of them to be made in Melbourne. Our vaccination program is on track 
Our vaccination program has the backing of Australia's best medical experts. AstraZeneca was central in Australia's campaign and at the time, an overwhelming majority of the public seemed on board, ready to go get the jab as soon as they could. Medical practices had long waiting lists, with the general focus being whether there'd be enough to go round. But if we fast forward to early March... Tonight, Australia's vaccine program in disarray after the AstraZeneca alert. Italy has joined France, the Netherlands and Germany in restricting the age of people it will vaccinate now with the AstraZeneca vaccine. Australia's top medical regulator is conducting an urgent investigation into the AstraZeneca vaccine. More cases of blood clots have been linked to the AstraZeneca vaccine. Another Australian is in hospital today battling a serious case of blood clotting after receiving the AstraZeneca vaccine. News broke very rapidly but very serious blood clotting incidences coming out of Europe. And it wasn't long before a couple cases popped up here too. Cerebral thrombosis had developed in some people after being administered with a dose of AstraZeneca, most of which were healthy young people and many of the outcomes being fatal. A lot of those under or under 50 people have started cancelling. So even if it does go well for a couple of months, who knows because it's like how many of them stayed and like got it. This is John Verghese. He's a 21-year-old medical receptionist at Clinicare Practice. He also got the AstraZeneca jab the day before the original recommendations were made, advising that people under 50 get an alternate jab where possible. Well, I was pretty, I was concerned, but also just like, this is just kind of funny. Like, of course, just me. But then um, as the days went on, I started getting really concerned about the blood clot, just because like my arm was still really sore and swollen. And I was like, and like poor circulation in the hand. And I was just like, dude, if this is like a blood clot, I'm doomed. John thinks if he had have heard of the blood clotting news prior getting vaccinated, he might not have gotten it at all. And he's not alone in this concern, even though we know the chances are so low of developing side effects. Every single blood clotting death is on the front page of every single newspaper for a week. And that is just not the case with other routine complications in medical practice. This is Associate Professor Aaron Martin. He's the author of Young People in Politics and ran a survey in January gauging public attitudes toward COVID-19 policies, including vaccination. Prior to you know, these problems, I think you would have said the vaccine alert would have gone quite well because public confidence was pretty high. Willingness to take the vaccine, at least, um, you know, comparatively, was, uh, was was much higher in Australia than other places. So I think we had a, a really positive starting point. Aaron says that this rollout is unmatched in its high levels of public attention, and that brings unique challenges. There's a couple of interesting aspects of this. One is that we just don't usually roll out government programs on this scale. So part of it is that things that wouldn't show up or wouldn't be paid attention to are just magnified because just because of the sheer scale of the rollout. Although if you look at numbers in the UK of people who died of complications of the of the Oxford vaccine, it's actually you know, it's a very low number of people, even though they, you know, they've vaccinated however many million people now. This high level of concentration that Aaron is talking about means that any errors may be intensified in the public's mind, with the amount of deaths leaving a much bigger impression than the likelihood of this actually happening. Aaron explained to me that public confidence isn't only being affected by fears of side effects like blood clotting, but in the politics that surrounds it all. How the rollout has been handled, how the government communicates, takes responsibility for targets and their ability to get enough supply. This trust is pivotal and it's much easier to lose than to gain. 
I imagine public confidence in AstraZeneca to be like a vase that has been dropped on the floor and smashed. No matter how good the attempts are to glue it back together, it was still dropped and it may look pretty good, but it'll never fully be the same. Let's look at the Johnson government in the UK. Will the public forgive the government for you know the, the various kind of problems that they um, face with, the, with dealing with the virus? And then the opposite may be true here, where people forget about the actual management of the virus and concentrate primarily on the failure of the, of the vaccine rollout. Morrison's sort of temperament and strategy is to blame others for problems. So I think that what is he or they have done again in terms of saying well, it's the state's fault. And I think that's extremely unfair. I mean, I think that the federal government has to take responsibility for the plan they put in place. So, yeah, I would say that's been disappointing so far. So where has this left us? Australia's targets to vaccinate the country by the end of the year have been ditched. A lot of Australians are either rejecting the idea of vaccination now or the vaccination strategy behind it. Time and lack of supply aren't working in the government's favour, with full public confidence seeming more distant than ever. It doesn't seem like we're looking at sort of a one or two month away. It looks like a kind of six months away or perhaps even longer. And I think that will have, you know, a real measurable effect on public confidence. That was Professor Aaron Martin talking with Olivia Smith. The pandemic has brought about a raft of misinformation and disinformation about the vaccine, herd immunity and COVID in general. Reporter Josh Farrell explains how the vaccine actually works. He spoke with Professor Catherine Bennett, the Head of Epidemiology at Deakin University, to get into the nuts and the bolts of COVID and the vaccine. A question I've had all through COVID is why would being vaccinated against the virus stop the lockdowns? COVID will not go away with the vaccine, but it is supposed to lessen the effects of the disease itself. COVID can still be out in the community and if allowed unchecked, surely would pose a massive risk. Professor Catherine Bennett, who is the head of epidemiology at Deakin, delves into how the COVID vaccine will allow us to avoid lockdowns in the future. Something I've always wondered is how does herd immunity work? At the beginning of COVID-19, the discussion ran rampant around everyone's dinner tables as to whether it was worth aiming for herd immunity through mass infection or to continue with harsh lockdowns to eradicate the virus. Whilst it was not in those exact words, everyone had an opinion on how to tackle the virus and whether the harsh lockdowns that we saw in Melbourne would work or whether we should allow the virus out into the community. 
This always seems strange to me, but the number of people struggling with COVID, allowing the majority of them to be infected, seems like a large risk that could have catastrophic consequences. Now the argument centres around whether mass infection or vaccines will be more effective. Mass infection revolves around allowing a majority of the population to become infected so their bodies can build up the required amount of antibodies to fight the disease. With the creation of the COVID vaccine, the World Health Organization has stated that herd immunity should be achieved by mass vaccination. The reason why the vaccine is recommended is it allows the individual to build antibodies whilst not forcing the person to become unwell with COVID. Professor Bennett explains what we're looking for when it comes to herd immunity and how the vaccine will tackle COVID. So the COVID vaccine is like all vaccines, you know, they're designed to save you from exposure to the virus itself, but present your immune system with something that looks a bit like the virus, but is safer, a lot, mm. lot safer. And so there are a number of different types of vaccines, but in this essence, they all kind of work the same way. It's about exposing your immune system to that part of this particular coronavirus, which is very, very distinctive. And that is this protein spike. You can see all those pictures of the coronavirus, see those protrusions on the outside of the sphere that are quite stable. So it means if you can get um, an immune response that recognises those protein spikes, it protects you from most of the, of the variants that are already out there in COVID. Um, and probably all of them to some degree, but it's not quite as good as two of the most recent variants of South African and, and Brazilian associated strain. If you get vaccinated, even if even with Pfizer, you know, over 90%, but that still means nearly one in 10 people who get vaccinated won't actually get the protection that they were hoping for. And so it's something where we do have to think about it as a whole population because your own vaccination status does impact the likelihood that the virus can continue to circulate in the community. For myself personally, having my older brother living in the US throughout the pandemic was incredibly challenging. I have been desperate to understand the potential for people to travel again without the huge costs associated with hotel quarantine. Professor Bennett explains what the future could look like in a vaccinated world. I think they're going to keep reviewing it as we go. I think, I think opening up will probably happen in bubbles that mm. will be with countries with a similar profile like New Zealand, like parts of Asia potentially. I think we'll probably still have some sort of border. You may have home quarantine, not other forms. Yeah. You might not have to go into hotel quarantine if you've been vaccinated or if you've got a normal variant of the virus, but they will still be screening for these nasty variants because we might not have coverage, you know, by the time we get enough vaccine roll out. So that's where time is important. The longer we take to vaccinate, not just Australia, but the world, the more chance there is for these nasty variants to turn up that might just change everything. Yeah. But if they, if they are contained and the world's really putting a big effort in, and if we can support countries that don't have either the ability to make their own vaccine or to buy it, then, you know, it has to be a really coordinated approach across the world. And if we can do that, then, as I said, a well-vaccinated world might not get rid of the virus completely, but it suppresses transmission enough that even if you do get local outbreaks, you can deal with it. That was Professor Catherine Bennett talking with Josh Farrell. Healthcare workers have been at the front of the fight against COVID-19 since the pandemic began. 
doctors, nurses and other COVID-19 frontline workers were promised their vaccines first. But there has been massive delays. Reporter Nick Hughes spoke to two healthcare workers to get their experience on working through a global pandemic. The Morrison government is calling in the military to fix its ailing vaccine rollout. The first vaccinations beginning with our health workers and uh, our aged care residents subject We're to very fortunate that we've been able to select and then acquire, which is the second stage, four vaccines, 134.8 million Australians would be vaccinated by March. Mine that was very happen. delayed and my co-workers still this haven't got these promises. Blood clots occurring in vaccine it's recipients. It's a 0.0003% chance. The coronavirus vaccine rollout in Australia has been scrutinised by the media and politicised in Parliament since its announcement at the end of last year. So far, the Morrison government has failed to hit lofty targets, but is asking for calm and faith in its strategy as the country prepares for the next phase of the program. Healthcare workers have been at the centre of the pandemic since it arrived on Australia's shores, and they were told they would be protected in the vaccine rollout. But some promises appear not to have been met, or delayed at the very least. My name's Chloe Knight, and I work in COVID relief. Knight works in a COVID testing clinic, meaning she should have been one of the first to get the jab. But delays meant she was forced to wait and potentially be put at risk as others made their way to the front of the line. Why is a receptionist who sits behind a plastic screen, you know, with her mask on, with the patient standing two metres away from her, why is she getting the extra level protection when people aren't in protective gear when they come visit me? Like, they're not wearing a mask. I'm all up where the droplets come from like they cough and sneeze on you and you've just kind of got to wipe it off and move on and hope for the best (laughs) i got mine at the end of march which was when they were claiming that the 1a which was frontline workers hotel quarantine and anyone really working in a covid environment which i fell under um they said that we're done we've done everyone we're good to go look at us go we're killing it And then they announced the start of 1B. And I kind of sat there with my mum, who's also a frontline worker. And we were like, that doesn't make sense. You know, we haven't been called up. And then we did get called up. And I came into work the next morning and no one else had. I was the only one. And I think about two other nurses had been called in for their vaccinations. And then they didn't get theirs until a week ago they got their first invitation. Yeah, it was very strange that they had started. um, I knew that receptionists at doctors' clinics had been vaccinated before me, and I kind of felt a bit, not scared, because I know that we're protected, but it was just like we're being left behind. What was the the emotion, the the feeling at that time? It was scary, because I was always think at the end of every shift, you're like, well, what if this is the shift where I get it? And I bring it home to my family, and it all falls yeah. to pieces and you know we've in my family we have had scares we have got some risk factors involved and when everyone you know the vaccine progress was moving on without me I was like I feel like you kind of get a feeling of don't I deserve this don't I deserve it yeah. after all the work I've been putting in for the past six months aside from that Knight did say the process itself was easy and has noted an interest and an eagerness in patients to know more about the vaccine and when they will be able to get it so too has Emily McIntyre 
She is a nurse in the early drug development clinical trials team at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre. Working in clinical trials anyway, I kind of understand the process of what goes into testing medications before they're released to the general population. One of the most contentious issues with the vaccine rollout has been the supposed link to the AstraZeneca vaccine and extremely rare blood clots. The government have approved, advised against and approved again the AstraZeneca jab for people under the age of 50. Both Knight and McIntyre received the AstraZeneca shot days before it was put on hold for that age group. But McIntyre was never worried and said others shouldn't be either. Yeah, just from my experience in working in hospitals and stuff before, I've seen people have dangerous blood clots for no apparent reason whatsoever. So I think, you know, there's always going to be some risk from taking a medication. We can't eliminate that completely. The rapid time frame in which the vaccines were tested produced and pushed onto the market has been another heavily misinformed element of the entire pandemic. In September 2020, an article from CNN was headlined, Past Vaccine Disasters Show Why Rushing a Coronavirus Vaccine Now Would Be Colossally Stupid. But McIntyre said that huge demand for the vaccine meant the process was accelerated much quicker than normal, not that corners were cut. A lot of the reason that clinical trials take so long generally is finding the right patient population and selectively choosing patients over a long period of time, whereas for the COVID vaccine, everyone needed to have it. And so they were able to dose a high number of patients quickly. So yeah, the fact that they vaccinated millions and millions of people and based their assessment of that, you can have a lot of confidence in that. And also the Therapeutic Goods Administration are very rigorous and, you know, they it, it makes no sense to release a product onto the general market if it's not safe. They just wouldn't do it. McIntyre added that it could not possibly be expected that any vaccine would be 100% effective in stopping transmission. But the main thing and the thing that makes it so important for people to get vaccinated is the fact that it has close to 100% effectiveness in reducing the severity of the cases. So that is the main thing, obviously, keeping people out of intensive care and preventing lives lost. As far as the remainder of the pandemic goes, McIntyre hopes for more information to be readily available to patients to ensure that misinformed opinions don't put lives at risk. The vaccine rollout is set to pick up pace in the coming months and the need for accurate information is as high as ever. Nick Hughes reporting there. When COVID first reached Australia, it affected many communities across the country. One community hit the hardest was those in the prison system, as well as their loved ones. Although some restrictions have eased in prisons, they're still not back to normal. And for such a high risk group of people, vaccinations are nowhere in sight. Sarah Oliver investigates further. I remember um, in late 2019, having to organise a prison visit in New South Wales, and it was at the time of the bushfires. And the first response was to evacuate the staff. Um, and I think this is the same with the with the vaccine. Um, it's, you know, as long as you protect those who society's 
a, who society regards as their lives mattering, i.e. those people running the system, um, where the actual prison population fits in is, is way down the line. Dr Talia Anthony is a Professor of Law at the University of Technology in Sydney. I mainly focus on criminal justice, looking especially at, I guess, the role of colonisation and systemic racism. Last year, Talia and many of her colleagues realised the urgency surrounding prisons and those inside. Talia said that those pushing for legislative change were finally being heard by politicians and were thrilled at the prospect that they may be making traction when it came to updating laws involving prisons. But their excitement was cut short when the corrections minister failed to apply legislation to release prisoners. We were making the broader argument that prisons are never safe inside or outside of a pandemic. Um, so we were hoping to get traction there. But because COVID never took hold, there, there were cases, but there weren't the outbreaks that um, were anticipated. But it, things just didn't unfold in that way. Let's go back to especially last year when COVID first hit. How how did that affect prisons in Victoria? Um, it, it was an incredible time because things were changing weekly, really, almost daily in that sort of mid to late March period last year. That's Marius Smith speaking. He's the CEO of the Victorian Association for the Care and Resettlement of Offenders, or VACRO for short. When COVID started to ramp up overseas, Marius and his team were very concerned for those serving time and being released from prison. And the data from overseas was showing that um, prisons were very vulnerable to the virus. It was, it was really running rampant in prisons in you know, Europe and, and the United States. But luckily, being in Australia, the virus had not yet reached us. So organisations like VACRO had time to work with Corrections Victoria and the government to prepare for the inevitable. Corrections Victoria set up a quarantine system. Uh, so anyone arriving to a prison from the community, so they're, they're arrested and then they're put in prison for the first time, um, had to undergo a 14 day quarantine period. Um, and that was extremely successful. While the severity of COVID in Australia feels like it's been left behind in 2020, there is still the chance of a resurgence in cases. So the solution, as we know, is to vaccinate. Currently, at the end of April, when this episode will be released, the vaccine rollout is moving pretty slowly. Despite promises the country's most vulnerable will be prioritised, there isn't a whole lot of information out there about when prisoners and prison staff will be vaccinated. To try to understand this problem, I contacted Corrections Victoria and the Minister for Corrections to see if they could shed some light on the situation. Although the Minister for Corrections did not respond to my request for comment, Corrections Victoria did provide a statement. They said that Corrections Victoria staff are eligible for the vaccine in Phase 1B of the rollout. Vaccinating prisoners, however, is being discussed between the Department of Justice and Community Safety and the Department of Health. They say they are planning for Phase 1B as well. Phase 1B is almost over, with Phase 2A set to begin next week at the start of May. Right, so we just don't know. And I get it. I understand there is so much going on still with this virus, but it just sort of feels like prisoners are being forgotten. And it's not just the physical toll COVID may have on prisoners. Even now, with most of the country opening up, most prisons are still imposing restrictions on how many visitors a prisoner can have. And in terms of face-to-face -face contact, how important is that for, for prisoners? 
Yeah, really important. So um, one of the things that happened when COVID started was that personal visits were shut down uh, from, from early March uh, 2020 until the end of 2020. And this was very difficult, but there was uh, the provision of hundreds of tablets to allow people to make video calls. But that actual physical touch, being able to see people and spend time with people is incredibly important. And it was some, something that was missed um, throughout the pandemic. So you had every prisoner in Victoria not have a personal visit from their loved one for basically a year. And that was a, a you know, huge sacrifice that they made during that period. As I mentioned before, prisons are allowing some visitors, but it's still restrictive and each prison have their own rules. So in order for prisoners to see more of their loved ones to help their mental health, it's obvious the solution is to start vaccinating as soon as possible. But it seems the government is more concerned about vaccinating prison staff first. But certainly some of the uh, initial priority areas for the vaccine um, were not focused on people in prison. Um, that may have changed and I think there's absolutely, um, you know, there's an importance to, to vaccinate. Um, if anything, it is the um, staff in prisons or the health officers in prisons who will be given priority, but not the people who are locked up themselves as far as I know. Uh, do you have any thoughts on, you know, staff being vaccinated before prisoners? Um in our opinion, uh, because of the really vulnerable nature of prisons, uh, you know, and we've seen clearly from overseas just how vulnerable prisons are, um, they're a priority for vaccination. And it's not, there's no point just vaccinating staff. We would say that both prisoners and staff are a priority population for vaccination because of that risk of transmission. One of the biggest takeaways to this story is to remember that people in prison are people. They're a part of who we are as a society and should be allowed their basic human rights, even while locked up. What would you say to someone who's sort of saying, that, oh, why should prisoners get vaccinated before me? We should be vaccinating the populations that are the most vulnerable first because that's how you get on top of the, the virus. Prisons are much more a part of the community than people perhaps understand. So, so it's not a case that you can just shut them off and, and, and then not worry about them. That, to me, by the way, would be an unacceptable position, but it's also not a, a realistic position. Uh, prisons are you know, very porous in terms of who comes in and out each day. Um, even though we often, um, as a society, regard prisons as... Um, these enclaves that are separate to society and we define the people inside prisons as separate to our own humanity which helps to justify um, keeping people in these horrible um, segregated conditions. Um, in reality the people in prisons and the prisons themselves are part of our society um, and when there is a pandemic and, and, and if there are outbreaks as we've seen in other countries um, prisons experience the outbreaks much more severely and that then feeds into or spills over into into society. That was Dr Talia Anthony ending that story. Undercover is brought to you by RMIT's journalism students. Today's reporters were Olivia Smith, Josh Farrell, Nick Hughes and Sarah Oliver. This episode was produced by myself, Ellen Madden, and assisted by Sarah Oliver. A special thanks to our executive producers, 
Tito Ambio, Zoe Daniel, and Janak Rogers. If you want to reach out, you can leave us a message via Twitter. Our username is cover underscore podcast. Alternatively, you can call us on 9018-5005. If you have any concerns about the COVID vaccine, you can talk to your local GP or look for further information on the Australian Government's vaccine website. There will be a link in our show notes. We'll be back next week with episode four. See you then.